When Christ came to earth, he did not come as a fully formed man. Rather, he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became a lowly embryo and thereby, in this act, made every child a gracious gift of God. No asterisks, no footnotes. To learn more about the blessing of children, pick up the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, cph.org slash witness, or our website, witness.lcms.org, to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Why do so many today believe that they can create and live in their own reality? And why do they feel the need to impose that self-chosen reality on others and even on society at large? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about the source for truth, Pastor Christopher Eskid. He's senior pastor at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia, fifth vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the book, Disordered Lies About Human Nature and the Truth That Sets Us Free, and a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled, The Ground of All Truth. Pastor Eskett, welcome back. It's great to be with you, Todd. How has the definition of the word truth changed in the last several decades? Well, it has stopped being about an objective reality that can be known, identified, stated, and it has become something that resides only within the individual, particularly in how the individual feels. So no longer do we speak about the truth with a capital T, but people speak about my truth or your truth. How has the loss of objective truth come with, as you say, a loss of purpose? The vision that God has for mankind in the beginning was quite specific, that man was to care for the garden, to have dominion over it, which is to say to love the world as God loved the world and cared for it, to abide in marriage and family, so to fill the earth. And that comes with a set then of of vocations, of callings, and the ultimate purpose of mankind is to become like God, to dwell with God, But now that we've entered into this complete realm of subjectivity, man doesn't find any external purpose. So I am a man. I am a husband. I have a purpose in my life to be a faithful husband to my wife. I'm a father, so I have a purpose to be a faithful father to my son. But once anything outside of me, objective, gives me what my reality is, what my purpose is to be in this life, now it's something that I need to discover for myself. So man wanders from one thing to the next looking for something that will give him meaning and satisfaction, but it's only something that is to be found subjectively, and thus it consequently never is found for many people. Where do many then look for meaning today? They're going to find their meaning in what satisfies them, what gives them the experiences that they crave. I was recently talking with a a couple preparing to be married, and we were talking about how the word love has changed over time from an activity that a person does to an experience that one feels. So 
when a couple promises to love each other, I'm teaching them that, that this is a, a set of actions of putting the other person first, of sacrificing for that other person. But when love is viewed simply as an emotion, now I can abandon my vows because I no longer love that person. So they're looking for an internal experience that will validate what they think or feel or will validate whatever actions that they have committed. So what view of man is behind what you call this emotivism? I didn't invent the term. Uh, it comes from Alistair McIntyre uh, in his great book, After Virtue. But emotivism then really is that I govern how I act and how I want others to treat me based upon how I feel. So emotions then govern everything as opposed to some kind of objective set of criteria or what we might call law, the will of God for us. That kind of view of man then is that there is no external source of authority, be that in government or ultimately in God. I decide what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is good, is simply based upon how it makes me feel. What happens to you if uh, you happen to disagree with someone's feelings or ideas or actions under this kind of emotivism? If you disagree, the person with whom you disagree sees that as invalidating not just their opinion, but their very existence. So you find people who, say, identify as uh, transgender. If you don't acknowledge their, their feeling about this, if you say, I, I disagree that a man can become a woman, they see this as an act of violence toward themselves, even an attempt at genocide to wipe out people who who feel this way, what it accompanies then is a loss of the ability to have independent thoughts and to speak what you believe. One of the bedrocks of our society, the idea that you can say what you want to, that you can speak what you want to, that is being taken away because it is seen as somehow doing violence to another person if you disagree with them. Why do so many believe that they can create and live in their own reality? Well, I think that we have stopped teaching people about objective truth and taught people that they need to discover it within themselves. So it's more that people are adrift, that they simply have not been given that option, but been told that however you feel is how we're going to validate you. So it's a fundamental problem of parenting, but especially of schooling, which is why it's important to either homeschool or send your children to a parochial school, where they're not going to be validated for any feeling that they have, but they're going to be taught that some things are wrong, some things are immoral, some things are just objectively not possible, say, for a man to become a woman. They need to be taught that there is this external truth because the rest of society is telling them whatever you feel is valid. Why the further need to impose that self-chosen reality on others and on society at large in many cases? Well, I think that that need comes from they need your validation of how they are feeling. Perhaps it's because there is some kind of recognition that it isn't. There must be a kind of internal dysphoria, I think, a, a recognition that this isn't that this isn't quite right. So I, if somebody else validates me in, in how I feel, that will that will give me the support that I'm craving. How do Christians know what is true? Yeah, I write in the article that there are two sources of knowledge or two sources of truth. And one of these, St. Paul identifies this in the, uh, the opening chapters of Romans, one of these is in nature. Uh, 
what I would call creation. There, we can see from creation that certain things uh, are true. We can infer that there is a creator from the design that is within creation. So we, we learn things from the world. We give names to these things. I let go of an apple, it drops to the ground. So I learn about gravity. These are objective things that we can see. But there is another source of truth, which is revelation. And the revelation is not a competing source of truth, but rather it tells us what these things mean. So we observe things in creation, we observe things in the world, and we can from that infer, deduce that there is a God, but we don't know how that God is minded towards us. We maybe are somewhat adrift on our purpose or how I should act. And from Revelation, then we learn more the meaning of or why certain things are the way they are or how God is minded towards us. So two ways to learn things, one from creation, natural knowledge, and one from scripture, which would be supernatural knowledge or divine knowledge. So how do those natural and supernatural revelations interact with one another? I see the supernatural revelation as giving us our guidance for how we interact with the things that we encounter in nature. So I learn, uh, I learn from Holy Scripture why God has made the world. He's made the world uh, to give it as a gift to man. I learn what he is minded uh, to do with the broken creation that I encounter. I, I see around me people sick, people suffering, people dying, but I learn from scripture why man dies, namely that it's because of sin and what God plans to do about it in the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of our own coming resurrection. So revelation teaches us how to interpret the world that we encounter around us. So how does the Bible show us that in the first place, God the Father himself is the ground of all truth? I'm really taken by the opening words of Genesis, well known, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But I'm struck by what happens if you simply stop before you get to the verb. In the beginning, God. Which I take to mean that God precedes the beginning. We learn in Genesis about our beginning, the beginning of the world, but we don't learn about the beginning of God because God always was. He is. He exists outside of our beginning. He exists outside of time. So everything that is true flows forth from him. That's, I think, the deeper meaning behind those opening words of Holy Scripture. You say that John's Gospel teaches us that truth is not an idea, information, or a set of propositions or scientific laws. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that there obviously are true things. There's information that we can communicate with each other. Two plus two equals four. There are scientific laws. But that truth itself is something deeper than those kind of individual nuggets or pieces of truth. And I take this from the prologue of John's Gospel, the first 14 or 18 verses of chapter 1. We learn there about the incarnation and the relationship between the first two persons of the Trinity in the beginning, just like in Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we learn a few verses later that he himself is truth. 
So it's not simply that we can learn truth from him. We can learn truth from Jesus. The things that he says are true, and we can learn those truths. But that by saying that he is truth, it's saying that truth resides in the Godhead, and here then specifically in the second person of the Holy Trinity. So to encounter Jesus is not simply to encounter a teacher who is going to tell us true things, but that he himself is what is true. And so the actions that he performs, first by condescending to become one of us, to take on human nature, then by going around freeing mankind from the demons, healing men, in their bodies, but also healing them in their souls by the forgiveness of sins, and ultimately in giving himself as a bridegroom for his bride, we see that he himself is what is true. So that to be a Christian then is not simply going to be to memorize a set of answers to some questions, but to recognize that he himself is what is true about everything. And to come to truth is not going to be a mere intellectual exercise, but to be joined to him in Holy Communion. And I mean something more than simply the sacrament of the altar, but ultimately to be united with God or to dwell with God as the last couple chapters of Revelation posits that God himself will dwell with his people. If God is the source of truth, what is the source of lies and falsehoods? The devil is the original liar, the Satan, the adversary. He wants to turn us away from God's word. So the first thing he does in Genesis 3 is to question God's word, or really teaching our first parents to question whether God was telling them the truth. And then he outright says that God is lying. But of course, he is the liar, and he brings mankind into his lies. The eighth chapter of John's Gospel has Jesus telling us that the devil is a murderer from the beginning and a liar, and that the truth does not abide in him. So of course, people tell lies, people tell falsehoods, but the ultimate lie is the lie that turns us away from God himself. That is the devil's aim. Everything else is subsidiary to that one thing. How does the Holy Spirit bring us truth? The Holy Spirit brings us truth, Jesus teaches in the Upper Room Discourse in John, by giving the apostles a special memory gift. That's that's what I call it. He says that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, will lead them into all truth and that he will help the apostles to remember the things that he has spoken. I take that to be a kind of statement about the inspiration of scriptures, namely that the apostolic word is firm and certain. It is a foundation upon which we can build. The apostles don't speak about themselves. They point us to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit helps them to do that. And the Holy Spirit is still active where the Word of God is being preached, that the Holy Spirit causes, creates, excites, strengthens faith when we hear the prophetic and apostolic word. This is a statement that also appears in the Nicene Creed, where it says that the Holy Spirit spoke by the prophets. That's probably mostly a reference to the Old Testament scriptures, but the principle there remains that the Spirit is active where the means of grace are, and the means of grace are founded in God's Word. So where the Word of God is read, 
preached or where it's attached to elements like water, bread, and wine, there is where the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding us also into the truth, which is Jesus. So given what we've said here, what are the present debates about marriage and homosexuality and transgenderism? What are they really about? I don't believe that they are simply a kind of moral question like other moral questions, you know, what is permissible in terms of stealing or obeying traffic laws, that the new teachings about marriage and human sexuality are an assault on creation itself. They are telling us that what God created, God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. It is an assault on that created reality. And in teaching us that sex is simply about personal satisfaction, it turns us away from God's telos or purpose for holy marriage, namely that it is a, a self-giving act between husband and wife that is attached to the procreation of children. This turns it on its head. It reviles children and seeks to do away with them by turning the procreative act against its own intention so that children are not being produced. And when a woman happens to become pregnant, well, we need to provide ways to destroy the life of that child. So these things, these assaults on marriage, sexuality, the nature of the sexes, the difference between man and woman, it is an assault on God's creation itself. How is sexual sin then a rejection of the truth about God? God wants to teach us that in our relationships as husband or wife, God wants to teach us something about who he is and how grace is received. So my son had done something bad. This is a few months ago. So I took away his favorite toy. And of course, he was very upset about this. And my, my wife said to me, is there any way he can earn it back? And she was just doing what a, what a good mom does. She's appealing for mercy for her son because I can't help but think about these things theologically. I immediately said, no, there is no way he can earn it back. But then I remembered the small catechism explanation of the first article of the conclusion. It says, all this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. That's when I replied further to my wife, there's no way he can earn it back, but nothing can be earned. It is pure gift. So he may receive his toy back. When God is putting us into vocations of husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, pastor, neighbor, he is teaching us how to love and he is teaching us something about what grace is. So the assault on the God-given vocations of male and female, husband and wife, father and mother, is intended to turn us away from what God is teaching us about himself and about what grace is within those several vocations. And it's really teaching us to put the self, the ego, upon God's throne and to remove him from it. You say, when it comes to the church's stance in civil society about all these matters, the church is not a debating society, but a repenting and forgiving society. What do you mean by that? I find that Christians, when they become impassioned about these various issues, 
want to work to change society. And there are good ways to do that, namely to, you know, I think particularly working in education, homeschooling, providing opportunities for the training and the care for youth. But once people think that the church really exists in order to rally votes for the next election or to, when you find people who want to argue on social media, They've lost their telos, they've lost their purpose, and they've missed out on what the church is supposed to do. We're not called to win arguments or to take control of governments, but rather to confess our sins, to repent and to abide in daily repentance and to receive the forgiveness that God offers and to bestow the forgiveness on others. So when I'm speaking about debating here, I'm, I'm saying that Christians don't exist to try to own their ideological opponents. They should be witnessing the love of God to them and not thinking that we will create some kind of utopia, a panacea here upon the earth if we can just win the next election and get the government back to where we want it to be. That's not the solution. The solution is for the whole world to be called to repentance and to receive the forgiveness that God offers. What will the cost be? for Christians holding fast to God's unchanging truth in our society today? I don't remember if it was John Stone Street who said this or someone else. I think it was him, but he he was speaking about the, the need for the church to develop what he called a theology of getting fired. And what he meant by that is that the world is going to oppose these truths, and it's going to oppose them vigorously. We are going to be not popular. We are going to be reviled, and perhaps the time is coming when the world will seek to take away status, income, possessions. We know that Christians in other lands suffer slavery, persecution, even martyrdom. The danger for us is to enjoy a middle-class American existence such that we don't want to do anything that is going to jeopardize that. But to speak the truth when all of society is railing against us is going to cost us something, and we need to be prepared to bear that cost, recognizing that we are simply following in the way of Jesus Christ. We're giving up nothing the way that the first Christians did the heroic martyrs of the faith. Uh, We're giving up nothing compared to what they have given. But our Lord Jesus calls us to follow him regardless of the cost and that he will give to us what he has promised, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life in his kingdom. If we're focused on preserving our life in this kingdom, then we will lose it, as Jesus said. Pastor Christopher Eskett is senior pastor at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia, fifth vice president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the book Disordered, Lies About Human Nature and the Truth That Sets Us Free, and a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Ground of All Truth. You can subscribe to the Lutheran Witness magazine and purchase the book Disordered, Lies About Human Nature and the Truth That Sets Us Free at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives or by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Eskett, thank you. Thank you so much, and have a blessed Advent. We will be looking forward to Sunday morning, the first Sunday in Advent, according to the three-year lectionary, with Pastor Sean Denzer, next. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc.